LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guests today are Thomas Sheridan and Jason Roba, who join us to discuss their documentary, Liber Velocity, The Apotheosis of Jack Whiteside Parsons. Born in 1914, Jack Parsons was an American rocket engineer, chemist and occultist. Associated with the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech, Parsons was one of the principal founders of both the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. His professional career also overlapped with a decidedly unorthodox and at times controversial personal life in which the borders between science fiction, rocket science and the occult blurred, and which involved associations with characters such as notorious occultist Aleister Crowley, Nazi rocket engineer Werner von Braun, and Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Parsons died in mysterious circumstances aged just 37, and the question still remains, was his death an accident or murder? Hello and welcome, Thomas and Jason. Thanks so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Great to be back, Greg. Glad to be here. Now, almost all of my listeners are going to be familiar with your work, Thomas. You've been on the show so many times. So we'll skip the introduction today, no offence. <laughs> and I'll just, Jason, you're, this is your first time on, but you're here together because you've worked on this film together, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, before we get started, just tell uh, the listeners a little bit about your work, Jason, and what it is you do. Yes, I'm a uh, composer based out of Seattle, Washington. I'm a veteran of the uh, U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army. Uh, I played a tuba in the Marine Corps band and the Army band. Uh, for about seven years together and uh, went to school for film composition and I've been working with Thomas here for about the last uh, six months on some films. Yes, you've done more than one project, but the one we're here to discuss today is entitled Lieber Velocity, the Apotheosis of Jack Whiteside Parsons. Now, in my recorded introduction, I've explained, it gave him a quick bio of Jack Parsons, who he was and what he did and what happened to him. Uh, perhaps you could both take it in turns to say, you know, how you discovered, you know, this guy and uh, his work, and then how that led on to uh, to making this new documentary. Uh, well, my discovery of Jack Parsons was years ago. Uh, I think it was Robert Anton Wilson had spoken about him in a in a radio broadcast or something like that, and uh, immediately I was fascinated by him. But there wasn't an awful lot of uh, information about him out there really and I had no idea that this guy who was so instrumental in the creation of the jet propulsion that it was his and things and was so central to the US American space program was also a guy who considered Alistair Crowley to be like a surrogate father and was the head of basically the OTO in California at a very pivotal time in American history 
and follow, you know, the, up, until, up until after World War II and into the Cold War, was building rockets and performing very advanced magical workings in the desert, would of all people, L. Ron Hubbard, the, found the, right, the author of Dianetics and the soon-to-be father of Scientology. To me, it was just an always an amazing, an amazing, amazing story. But there was like, any time I read about it, it was always very negative. Jack Parsons, Jack Parsons was always kind of covered in a framework of, he was a devil man, he was involved in Satanism, you know, all this, the usual negative things that are told that, he, you know, the default bespoke commentary made by people who work in the occult. And uh, how could he be involved in all this stuff while he was also developing, you know, liquid and, and, and powdered fuel rockets for the for Na for what would become NASA and so on. And then uh, that was basically it for years and years. And I'd pick up the odd thing now and again, 14 times, may have done the odd article about him. And again, it was just the usual titillation, you know, he's a sex maniac. Uh, it was all sex magic. It was all occultism. He was Emma Crowley. He was a... Uh, he was he was he was killed because he was not very you know he didn't follow his true path as a scientist, and um, then a TV series came out a couple of years ago called Strange Angel, which I watched it and it wasn't bad it, it, you know but it, it like it was typical Hollywood in that it, um, it it sexed up the story and added in things that didn't really happen and stuff like that and it it, it, it kind of brought in these characters that didn't exist in real life but it got a lot of people interested in it so then I said. Let me look into it. And just around the same time, about six months ago, eight months ago, Jason, who had contacted me after I'd mentioned something about what an enigmatic character L. Ron Hubbard was following World War II, immediately after World War II, what an interesting person this guy was and what he was connected to, that we started to, both of us, really dig into him and uh, reading everything we could find, every book we could get, anything by people who even knew him and stuff like that. And suddenly this image of a very different person than what had been portrayed to us through popular culture started to emerge. Uh, to me, the more I learned about him, my admiration for him grew. This was a, a Renaissance man. This was a guy who had a, a very powerful sense of decency and kindness and didn't deserve the tag of being called an evil, you know, a Satanist and so on. And then Jason also agreed with that, and that's how we began this project. We started by saying, let's make a, see if we can make a short film, and before we knew it, we had enough material to do a, a feature-length documentary. So, Jason, did you come to Jack Parsons via L. Ron Hubbard, or were you aware of, of his life separately? I actually came to Parsons through uh, Thomas's work. He had mentioned him a few times in various videos, and then I did a little bit of research on my own about the man and, and found that connection there between him and Hubbard and him and Crowley. And I, I've always been digging through the books, trying to find people who, to me, are the real deal in the occult. Because I, I've, you know, I've read, I've, we've all read the books where, <laughs> you know, they. Uh, they have a lot to say, but they just, they aren't very convincing. But the more, the more I looked into Parsons, he just seemed like the real deal to me. And I wanted to know more about him. And I had dreams about him, I had dreams about working on projects about, uh, about Jack Parsons. And 
just thought that it would be an excellent opportunity to work with Thomas Sheridan on a project like this. Well, you mentioned Strange Angel, Thomas, that uh, TV series, and I haven't seen any of it. I didn't know it existed because I really don't pay attention to what's on TV currently. Um, all the TV shows I watch are, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays of stuff from the 70s. But you used the word sexed up. And yeah, I understand that when Hollywood in particular are adapting real life stories for the screen, they have a tendency to do that. But I mean, really, um, I'll have to go and check it out because if there's one life story that you would think that wouldn't need to be sexed up, it, it was Jack Parsons. And he had, what really touched me when I was watching your documentary was how in the initial phase anyway, how he, from his childhood interest in science fiction and, and rocketry and how he was really living that doesn't happen very often. He was kind of living at his purpose in a way. Many people have childhood dreams of what they want to become and they get sacrificed or compromised and they, they, they wither away. And it's such a shame. And that's what really touched me about it. Here was a guy who had this passion for, from out of who knows where and he actually lived it. You know, and when I was a kid, I, I said for years and years and years, I'd build with Lego and I told all the adults, I'm going to be an architect. I'll draw pictures of houses and tower blocks. I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to be an architect. And I'm not an architect. So that was a quite moving thing that struck me about the film. If there was one person who lived as Dharma, it was Jack Parsons. It's just remarkable. And uh, he was fully aware of it. That's the most amazing thing about it. He, it wasn't just that he accidentally stumbled through a career in rocketry and science and engineering and chemistry. He was actually, he, he actually almost instinctively knew that he was on the right path and doing in life what he was meant to be doing. It was the classic case of following one's dharma and one's purpose in life from an incredibly early age, remarkably early age. It's still amazing to me to think that him and his best friend, Ed Foreman, from firing rockets on back lawns in Pasadena, basically were responsible for the Apollo moon, moon project. You know, it just, and coupled with that, and this is a very important thing, is that his obsession with science fiction was that there were three things in his life, rocketry, and the occult came later, but the other one was his obsession with science fiction. And somewhere along the line in his early age, he had figured out that literature was simply more than imagination and stories, that it was almost a grimoire or a means to hack the prevailing reality in order to push your intention four or five steps ahead of where the current time frame of the electromagnetic spectrum quantum matrix currently exists. And that if you write about something, dream about something, and science fiction was that for Jack Parsons, that you will actually bring that into manifestation. And somewhere at a very early age, he discovered that science fiction had a magical quality to bring reality, and, and, and lots of fiction, but the Rosemary Allen Guiley wrote in her book, The Vengeful Jim, about how H.P. Lovecraft had this, you know, as a typical of a science fiction writer, who had this remarkable ability to hack reality and see reality before it happened. And that's exactly what Jack Parsons was, and that's what made this whole thing so special, that it was the combination of, of Crowley's you know, description of magic as being, you know, art and science in conformity with the will. He was the epitome of that. Do you want to jump in there, Jason, on anything? 
Yeah, and for me, you know, with within my generation of being a millennial, it's it's difficult uh, for us being raised to uh, always <laughs> from the time you're in you know sixth grade uh, to be taught about you know what what career you're going to be doing, what college you're going to be going to, and, and following a path set out for you by society. And all, all of the, uh, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of, of people that, that my generation looks up to. It's really refreshing to find someone who followed their path, followed what, you know, as Thomas said, followed his dharma, you know, his, his true will in life, uh, from, you know, being a young boy firing off model rockets with his best friend to, you know, creating, uh, solid, fu- solid fuel and liquid fueled, uh, Jado cans for, for, um, the military taking off, uh, you know, putting the boosters underneath uh, propeller airplanes to get them off the ground quicker or off of an aircraft carrier quicker by the time he was, what, um, in his mid-late 20s. So just that whole idea of of a a mentor or a, a role model to, that followed his own will, his own, um, his own dharma in life is just so refreshing to find. And um, between that and the connection with Aleister Crowley and Thelema, I just, I, I really found him such a fascinating man. And, you know, we don't have enough, uh, characters like that in our, in our modern mythology. So that's what I'm real happy about is that Thomas and I are able to create a, a modern mythos for, for my generation and, you know, for younger people that it is okay for you to go out there and follow your true will in life, to do your Dharma, to find something that you want and love, want to do and love doing and then not letting anything stop you from doing that. I discovered Parsons what little I knew about him prior to watching your documentary. It was, just, it was through a picture of the guy actually that I was drawn to. And it was the picture of him when he, I think he's 23 and he's holding the pipe bomb that he reconstructed as um, evidence in a court case. And he's only 23 and he's doing this, you know, he's turning a, a court case, uh, you know, from, he's, he's making it from a potentially corrupt unsuccessful prosecution into a successful prosecution and closure of the case and it was the picture was in it was nothing to do with him per se it was in i can't remember now but it was either a pulp magazine or a book about just strange and weird stuff and his picture was on one page and i read a little bit about him so that that's it's interesting that that's how i came to him it wasn't through it was through sort of second or third hand, if you see what I mean. I didn't see a program about him. I didn't, you know, read a book about him. It wasn't like that at all. It was, it was the, these all, because he was connected to so many things, as you say, Thomas, Renaissance man into so many things and connected to so many people. You know, any one of the things that he got involved in in his life would have been enough for one life alone. But, you know, he's sort of living several lifetimes and bearing in mind that he died young, uh, is something else as well. What you said about science fiction, Thomas, is very interesting. But because how often does science fiction become science fact? You know, so many of, you know, like men dreamed of going to the moon long before it ever happened. So this is often, it often works out like that. And you're absolutely right about this is a connection to magic as well. Um, about writing things down. Anybody who's involved in any sort of magic will understand the power of writing down your intention, particularly in a very mindful way, maybe with some ceremony involved in it. And it's just focusing your intent and focusing energy is what it's about. And in popular books about manifesting and, you know, creating your own reality, writing things down is so important. Um, so that's just really, really interesting way to come at it. And I would say right now, I'm struck, and I did a vlog about this, about in our current world, you know, we're here speaking in 2021, we've lived through a year plus of this COVID-19 pandemic and panic. 
and hysteria. And one by one, all those dystopian books from the 50s, 60s and 70s that I read as a teenager um, are are un- being unveiled. It's happening before my very eyes. Yep, I often wonder about that too. If we have, I mean, I've almost got not a guilt complex about it, but the things in the kind of way that I spoke about them 10 years ago in Puzzling People, they actually came to pass. And in some cases, remarkably, on the dates I said they would happen. Uh, I can remember in Puzzling People, I said there was a very good chance there would be a, a, a some kind of lockdown. They might use a pandemic and they'll call it the new normal. And that came to pass 10 years later. In, in Valpurgis Night, I wrote in the foreword that 1919 will be the most pivotal date in the history of the human race until 2020. And... Uh, Lo and behold, 2020 came, turned out to be a very pivotal date in the changing of reality. So I'm kind of worried now about, like, did we in the alternative scene somehow, I know this is probably way out there, but maybe it isn't at the same time too, that we have kind of some way hacked reality in order to make some of the things that we were rightfully concerned about, such as the, the surveillance society, such as the uh, the restrictions, the 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 power of the technopharmacological industry, that a lot of that has come to pass, and uh, we are. I mean, I I'm I want to know where does the visionary end and the magician begin, and I think that that's a very real question that needs to be considered going forward, because that was one of the things that I got from the Jack Parsons film is there was a point where you realize these two things, the visionary and the the magician manifesting, and then you have to find the, the demarcation line between those two states and uh, the trying system in it, where you create the, the reality you want, just like the Hindus say in the Vedic scientist tale, tell us with things like Maya, and... Uh, being wary enough of any changes that they might be hacking into reality for us. That's why, I, you know, 2020 was a tremendous education in many ways, but also making this film with Jason, a lot of spooky things happened. It, it, the film almost like made itself at certain points. Everything went just right for us. It was almost like there was an unseen force behind Jason will tell you this in terms of everything. We disagreed on nothing. We were both almost in each other's heads at the same time. And I don't think that could have happened in any other year except 2020. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's just the fact that, as you've talked about, Thomas, a, an up-and-coming uh, renaissance, if we in the alternative scene did you know, manifest some of these changes, I think that they were manifest so that a next um, up-and-coming renaissance can occur, so that art and film, music, everything, the arts uh, can have a, a, um, a transformation from what they are now as, as kind of uh, watered-down, commercialized uh, film and TV and music in, the, in those particular industries that, you know, you and me and people like Greg and, you know, everybody out there who is in this scene is creating the next uh, the next big film industry or the ne- or I, I shouldn't say big, but the next film industry, the next TV industry, the next film or the next music industry that you know something can can organically um, transform from the old going into the new, and in order for that to occur, some kind of change had to happen. So you know, as a, as a caterpillar 
uh, goes and you know transforms into a butterfly. There's a very difficult process for that caterpillar as it transforms into a butterfly. And it seems like we're as a society kind of in that period right now of of turning from metamorphosizing from you know a, a crawling caterpillar to a, a flying butterfly. And as we come out of uh, everything that's occurred in the last year with COVID, we're going to have you know great art, great cinema, great music, great philosophy. You know, new new thinking emerging out of these difficult times, because everything everything that's happened since I would say you know since I've been alive since the mid '80s has been kind of just a reiteration of that technology, as you've mentioned before, Thomas. You know that it's there's nothing really new that's emerged. There's things have become faster and more compact, and you know more more pixels per square inch on the screen, but nothing truly. Um, Innovative has really come forward in the last uh, 30, 40 years. And now now that we've had these difficulties, I would imagine there will be new things. There will be new technologies, new art forms, new philosophies. You know, the, what we're doing here with Libra Velocity and the films going forward, it, it's a new genre of film. I imagine that we're going to be inspiring other people to make film and music in the style that we did, you know, with, with minimal gear, uh, a minimal production crew, but maximum artistry and, and maximum dharma, you know, following <laughs> following what we've been doing our whole lives and just naturally making it happen. You know, like you said, there was nothing, <laughs> there were no problems that we, we ran up with besides, you know, just maybe a couple mixing things on my end. There, there, was, there was nothing that had to be reshot or re-edited or, or redone or anything. And I'm hoping that, you know, other people will be able to have that kind of success going forward from 2021 and beyond into the next renaissance. One of the one of the most common comments we've got on the film back from people is they just said thank you for making a proper documentary. What they meant by that was there was no political swing. They were finally able to sit down and watch something that was a hundred minutes long that didn't have a political element to it, a politically correct wokeness to it, where everything was some kind of editorial against whatever the prevailing. Uh, the sins of Western society. So we just told a story. And that was almost like a revelation for people because they've forgotten what it is to be told a story without any kind of editorialization in order to sanctify or to prop up the prevailing cultural or political orthodoxy and zeitgeist. And uh, I think that's going alone is going to really inspire people. They're sick to debt of people involved in the arts, whether it be rock music, the art, painting, filmmaking, TV, cinema, you name it, that have to frame their work and their creative power within a bogus and trite superficial political statement that that's, that's ending now. I, I want this film to be the beginning of the end of that. The purpose of this is to create art without, without having to pin it to the uh, the prevailing political mentality. We talked about uh, this uh, the difference between now and, and decades gone by in terms of um, quality of culture and media um, in some of our hauntology talks that we did, Thomas. And uh, I remember a few years back stumbling upon this interview with Patrick McGoohan, the actor, <coughs> excuse me, perhaps most well-known for his role, lead role as number six in The Prisoner, the series that he created. But it was a Canadian talk show from the 70s. And it was 
him talking all about the prisoner and the rationale of it, when he was in the studio with this one guy, the host, and an audience who were wrapped for like an hour, and McGoohan sat through the whole thing puffing on cigarettes in the studio, and it it went so in-depth, and it, I, I was just struck by... The, you, know, you wouldn't have thought twice about that watching it in the 70s, but I was just struck by the superficiality in, uh, in modern media that we'd arrived at. So your documentary reminded me a little bit of something that, you know, we're, what was I was going to say doesn't get made anymore, but you both just addressed that, but that would have been very much at home. I can imagine that being screened at late night TV, you know, just before the, the TV shut down for the night, you know, in, in 1979 somewhere, you know, on BBC Two starting at 11. <laughs> Well, I actually built it in the style of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Worlds. Do you remember that TV series from the late 70s, early 80s? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, was, I, I, yeah. I got both the books because Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Strange World and then Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers was the follow-up. Yeah, well, it was in that style of filmmaking. I always thought that left an enormous impression on me as a kid. And uh, the way everything was told in a series of vignettes. And, but it all, flew, it all flowed perfectly together into a whole. And I, that was the one that kept revisiting in my mind when I was making Believer Velocity, that this was going to be a series of chapters of vignettes that were going to be stitched together uh, and lead people, people's consciousness and attention from one thing to the next. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very high praise indeed. Thank you for that, because that's exactly what I was aiming for. BBC Two, Wednesday night, 11 p.m., <laughs> yes. And I know, Jason, you'll understand... Uh, where I'm coming from with this comment, and I, don't be offended, but American popular culture is often seen as some, you know, it produces some of the most vapid stuff in the world, unfortunately. But like any country, you can dig back into the archives. And I know you mentioned, you give, you've given us a hint of what, what age you are, what generation you are. But I watched many, many American series and American documentaries from decades gone by, even up to like the early 80s. Uh, you know, and the, the the quality was so markedly uh, superior to a lot of what gets churned out these days. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I both of my parents when I was growing up, uh, big film, TV, and you know, uh, buffs, and I always enjoyed watching and listening to the music that they enjoyed and you know shared with me. And yeah, for me, getting away from sort of the orthodoxy that's there. In Hollywood right now, uh, it was a real breath of fresh air working with Thomas on this film because I just finished a degree program in uh, film, TV, and video game composition that was, uh, you know, incredibly orthodox and, you know, great for someone who wants to go work in kind of the Hollywood factory. It, it sets you up with those, you know, the uh, uh, the way things are done in that way. And working with Thomas immediately, you know, there's a little bit of an overlap there. I, I finished school in December and then I, I went and did some filming in January. And just going from one to the other, it was like I knew all the rules that were there. I was familiar with them. Now I can go out and break them. You know, I, I can pick and choose what I what I want to take with me. But I wanted I wanted the story to speak for itself, uh, without any without any kind of um, you know orthodox overlay over it. There was a very kind of experimental score, uh, if you want to consider it experimental in that way, not not in a kind of a, a noise machine kind of way but just experimental with, with new techniques, with, with new forms of uh, atonal harmony that were used in this film. And it was just, it was just real nice to do that. It was real nice to, to not have to score it the typical way, uh, you know, with everything being 
uh, you know, following the formulas for orchestral scoring or even for modern synthesizer scoring. Well, this is something else that Thomas and I addressed once again in the hauntology talks that we did, uh, how important music is, uh, you know, in the context of TV and, and film and how throwaway it can be these days. You know, how many Hollywood, I mean, all the Hollywood blockbusters now, it seems to me, they've all got the same interchangeable orchestral score that is on superficially, you know, intricate, complex and layered, but really it's completely and utterly forgettable. And in decades gone by, this is the thing, uh, people shouldn't by now have guessed that you've scored this, this new documentary, but it really recalls the days when music was not an afterthought when it came to presenting something on the screen. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I have a theory that uh, Western civilization began to collapse when MTV stopped playing music. It was like that was the pivotal moment. It was like something very superficial crept into the world. So when MTV stopped playing music videos, it was almost like they were sent the the powers that be were saying, "Okay, pop music isn't important anymore. We're going to phase it out." And I think that was a lot of that there, and that's why I think people became musically illiterate from that point on. I mean, you're talking about soundtracks of the past, even things in back in in the old days, like the '80s. That at the time I wouldn't have had any interest in like Jan Hammer's theme music from Miami Vice. When you listen to Miami Vice's Miami Vice soundtracks now, the stuff, the compositions he wrote for that TV show, they are amazing. And that was just a cop, a mainstream cop show on a Friday night or whatever. And yet, the complexity and the work and the depth put into that was gave that gave the show gave gave the tr- soundtrack and a score to that show and many other shows a personality. And that's what you're saying about the Hollywood films. I get it. They all have the same soundtrack. They all have the same the same uh, score. It's always this hum, you know, it's like this kind of droning and uh, with these crescendos that build up. And they're literally a boilerplate thing. It's like cookie cooker. They're all the same, the soundtracks, especially if there's any kind of science fiction or adventure film, like our superheroes. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, parts of my music collection over the decades has been some television, but mostly movie soundtracks. I had I had hundreds of LPs at one time of movie soundtracks. It's not really a thing anymore. Um, you know, it's kind of like who's who's going to want to buy and listen to that sort of that sort of nonsense. You know, that, that completely interchangeable nonsense. It's got no character, no color, no individuality. Uh, but you know, Jan Hammer, for example, doing the Miami Vice soundtrack. Well, he's an established composer and musician. You know, he has his own thing going you know he's not brought in okay just do some noodling over this car chase you know well that was when i said to jason that like uh, the soundtrack is to be as important and the audio we're what what jason does we've been calling it sonic alchemy and that's what it is because what happens is i do the recorded voice part and i send it to him just as the straightforward voice recorded and he does all the tweaking and all the the, he changes the gaps and he he changes things around and accentuates it with piece of music or puts in between it so it's more than just a score. It's like it's like a form of sonic. It is all like sonic alchemy. That's what we call it, and uh, that's why we do things like we re- release Jason's score a few days after the films that come out. So this is unprecedented in alt media. Uh, you know, alt media until this point has been ref- r- very rough and ready, very fanzine-ish almost. There, uh, but it was time I felt and Jason that we wanted to take it to the next level to produce. We did whatever budget we can manage to get, and we did spend a fair amount of money on this film. But it was like it was it came from Patreon, so it was like doable. But uh, 
the, 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 to actually say, look, in the alt media, we're not just—it's not just about copying someone's video or bits of people and stitching them together with like a, some, you know, some song. We can actually produce work that is comparable to anything in the mainstream using the, the technology available, and uh, that includes the unique thing in alt media of also releasing the soundtrack to the films we make. So you get a full multimedia video, uh, film, story, and music all on the YouTube channel and uh, uh, beyond uh, Room 313. I mean, we've even spoke about in the future taking this thing on the road as even like a multimedia show and stuff like that with a live music soundtrack. Well, we want to take, we, you know, it's not good, you know, things have changed in 2020. And uh, it's, uh, instead of like saying, oh, it's all over and that's the end of it, we've decided to up the ante and like, you know, create a new, like Jason said earlier on, a, a, a renaissance of alt media. We can help other people do the same. Yeah, it's about focusing on what you can do, not on what you can't um, in, in, the, in terms of, you know, the restrictions of the last year, really. I was going to say one more thing about the score that, that, that I really like doing is making sure that that the music itself is like another character on the screen. It, it's as memorable as as a character or as memorable as, uh, you know, the subconscious of the character that you're talking about. Or it can sometimes even be the collective unconscious of the group of people who are on the screen, rather than just being, you know, like like Thomas said, a boilerplate or, you know, just something that's there humming in the background. It, it should be something that that isn't stealing the, the spotlight necessarily, but is there working along with the visuals and uh, any voiceover uh, as like another character on the screen? Well, Jason, you're probably familiar with the soundtrack work of John Carpenter, you know, a, a composer, and musician himself, primarily a film director, and he's scored along with um, um, along with various collaborators over the years. And he scored many of his own films, and he's used exactly that phrase: the, the, the soundtrack is a character. And in fact, when he made Halloween, until he did the version of the score that is now in the film, the, re the reception to the test screenings wasn't great. So that was the final piece of the puzzle that really transformed the movie. Yeah, I, I just recently discovered uh, John Carpenter within the last, pretty much right before I started working on Libra Velocity. So I guess I have a little bit of inspiration there from him. But, you know, I, I never go into a project with, with the idea of, okay, I want to make this John Carpenter-esque or Philip Glass-esque or you know, Bernard Herman-esque or something. It, it Sometimes people will make a comment that, oh, this sounds like this or it sounds like that. And, and it, it, usually it accidentally ends up sounding that way because I, the way that I go about it is that it's, it's the score is almost like a cut-up for me where sometimes bits and bobs will come to me uh, as I'm, you know, going out and mowing the lawn or something. I'll get a melody stuck in my head and I can turn off the lawnmower and, you know, go hum it into my phone until I can get to my computer and then other points, I'm sitting at my computer with that, you know, kind of open session, you know, open computer with a blank template going, man, uh, what, I need to write something. And it ends up kind of being um, a little bit of a cut up with working with, okay, just pick a direction and go with that and kind of see what the daemon, you know, what my subconscious experience through life has to say about this and kind of let my uh, everyday conscious waking mind get out of the way so that my subconscious or, you know, the collective unconscious uh, that Thomas and I are working with here can speak. And it speaks through the gestures and shapes that I'm capable of making. 
And by the time I'm done working with it, it's like, oh, well, that, that's kind of interesting. Just just like with working with a cut-up, you know, you, you get done with it, you, you know, you glue it all together and put put some varnish over it, and it, it makes a meaning out of seemingly nothing. It's kind of like that's how a lot of the music for Libra Velocity came together. It was initially, you know, nothingness, and then by the time I was done with it and put a bunch of layers together, it, it really had something to say of its own. Well, a lot of artists have spoken about this, the... the, the... The creativity coming from somewhere else. I mean, I famously remember uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin saying this about Stairway to Heaven. They said, we didn't really write this. It came to us. Oh, yeah. And Anthony Peake and his whole Damon thing. Yeah, that's a classic example there. The Damon was all over the making of this film. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com.